0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Napier, and today... Well, starting today, I should say, we're changing things up a little bit. Um, you know, this podcast that we're recording now is the last podcast to be recorded in 2020. It will be the first podcast aired in 2021. And with that, I thought it would be good to kind of freshen up the the podcast format a little bit. So I'm making some changes. And uh, our next guest <laughs> is Dave Clark. And uh, Dave, it's great to have you on. How are you? Extremely well. Thank you. I'm so glad that you're doing this. And I apologize for kind of um, putting you in the place of the guinea pig here as we test out our new format here for the first time. But I really appreciate you joining us here over the the holiday <laughs> break.
1: No, I'm uh, delighted to join you. Christian, thanks for the invitation.
0: Well, it's my pleasure. I'm really, really excited to have you on. And before we dive back into the memories Mm -hmm. of Salt Lake, I want to ask a little bit about what you're doing currently. You mentioned uh, uh, that you moved your lunch hour up a little early so we could (laughs) have this conversation. So that uh, implies that you're actually working on something. So why don't you give us a little sense of where you are and what you're doing these days?
1: Sure. Yeah. For the last five years, I've been um, with Emergency Management Victoria. Um, That is a a part of the Victorian State Government, Um, and as its name implies, it is um, a part of the um, the uh, government that leads the emergency management sector, Um, and its primary Um, role is to maximise the ability of the emergency services organisations to work together um, and strengthen the capacity um, of the communities to plan for, withstand, respond to and recover from emergencies. That's all manner of emergencies. So
0: what is your responsibility there in in the emergency management space? And how did you end up working with uh, the Victoria province or state? What do we call it in Australia? Is it a state or a province?
1: It's a state. It's a state. So um, Australia is made up of states and territories. I, uh, yeah, I moved back here five or six years ago after working in london on the on the uh 2012 olympics i joined emergency management victoria or as emv as we like to call it for short and um went in there as a project manager basically and became involved on a on a series of projects medium to long-term projects Um, And the area of work or the department I'm involved with is sector investment, where I um, and uh, three or four colleagues support the funding uh, or the bid proposals from emergency service organisations that are put forward to government for funding submissions. To expand their funding allotments, in order to to sort of yeah to basically grow their um, grow their funding base.
0: Oh, that's really really interesting. Yeah. Well, before we dive into the uh, Salt Lake two thousand two questions, mm-hmm. as part of the change in format here, I have a couple of questions, and the first question is. What is something that most people don't know about you, but, you know, is something that's kind of fun that you're willing to share with, with folks that are listening to the podcast?
1: I have been dancing Argentine tango for 20 years. Okay. Mm. That which is, is a cool. Bit of, which is a bit out of left field, isn't it?
0: How use. did you get interested in dancing the tango?
1: <laughs> I was living in London and um, a friend of mine who knows me very well, suggested that I go along to this place. Yeah, in Bloomsbury, I think it was, which is it's just sort of in, the, in in central London there near Covent Garden. And um, I went along and the teacher uh, the teacher said, now this is the, the first lesson, said, now we've got a warning for you, this can be addictive. Now me being having sort of an addictive type of personality thought i don't believe them and here i am 20 years later still still with a passion
0: but did you do dancing before or was this like a completely new experience for you
1: no i had done dancing of um different forms yeah probably for 15 or 20 years
0: but you've settled on the tango
1: once once bitten by the tango yeah
0: Well, that's uh, good to know. Uh, I either want to try it or I want to steer clear of it because I don't know if I'm ready for an addiction to tango just yet. (laughs) My next question for you, again, before we dive back into uh, 2002, uh, I think many of us are very happy to leave 2020 in the rearview mirror and move on to 2021. So uh, my question is, what do you want to do in 2021 that you could not do? In 2020
1: Um, travel for most of my life which is half the reason I've ended up here I'd like to go to travel internationally and travel to visit family in England so I was born in England as you might detect Uh, my brother still lives there and also I'd like to investigate uh, professional opportunities in Europe Secondly, I'd like to go to Tokyo next year. I've never actually watched an Olympics. I've worked on five, so I might like to go and watch. And if anybody wants to offer me a little bit of work to do, I might consider it. <laughs> yeah, but but yeah, I wouldn't mind going to watch as a spectator too.
0: Well, I think that would be great uh, to go to Tokyo. I mean, it's going to be a historic singular event because it's going to be the first games that have been uh, postponed to later have been hopefully successfully held a fingers crossed, touch wood and it may very well be the first global event of that scale to be held uh, following the pandemic in whatever way shape or form it is actually held and so I think it's going to be incredibly interesting to see so I hope that you get the opportunity to go there as a spectator or uh if need arise um on some kind of short term uh basis to go and help them out so I think that's fantastic
1: I'm I'm ever the optimist I hope and I strongly believe that the the games will happen next year
0: i do too i do too i think uh, things are progressing we're getting our arms around uh, things a little bit here in the world and we're trying to figure out how to coexist with this crazy virus as the (laughs) vaccine get out and so on and so forth. And so they will happen. All right.
1: I have every confidence. You ready to talk about SLOC? Whenever you
0: are. (laughs) (laughs) I'm ready.
1: That's why we're
0: here. So let's, let's talk about the Salt Lake uh, 2002 games. First question I have for you about those games is, uh, well, You mentioned that you were in London or you grew up in England. You're now down in Australia. How in the world did you find yourself in Salt Lake City?
1: Well, I was, prior to Salt Lake City, um, I really should write a book. I was, um, not that anyone would read it, but I was living in Sydney. And my first games role was on um, Sydney 2000, where I was working, where I worked for Mr. Foster, Paul Foster. Um, uh, Well, I was at Mr. Foster's uh, venue, which was the Olympic and Paralympic family hotels. I was the overlay development manager um, there and also the domestic and international airport terminals. So I had that entree into the world of the Olympics. And then, as you know, Christian, once you've done one, rightly or wrongly, you have this aura of, well, they might know what they're doing. (laughs) Um, So I um, was interviewed for a position at SLOC and, to my surprise, was was successful in getting that and ended up um, securing the position of overlay development manager for Olympic and Paralympic family hotels. Um, so it was, as I've sort of termed it in my, in my sort of mind. So it was pretty much a similar role, only I had to wear extremely thick gloves because it was very different weather. <laughs> yeah. I remember one night, um, at about, well, we had to work throughout the night, putting, um, putting, uh, concrete barricades in place to establish the hard lockdown with uh, forklift trucks, um, you know, following the events of 2001. And um, that was an interesting one because um, the concrete barricades themselves, each one was, um, you know, weighed, because just knows how many. Anyway, these things weigh a tons. So, <laughs> um, yeah, but it took all night. Um, I was uh, accompanied by one of the... Of wonderful uh, police inspectors in her car and she, she let me keep warm by sitting in the passenger seat of her car but um, yeah it was quite a different experience to to uh, to conducting the overlay in Sydney I'll put it that way <laughs>
0: Um, give us a sense of the timing. Did you come over immediately following the conclusion of the Sydney games or did you have a little bit of a break between uh, your tenure in Sydney and then starting up in Salt Lake?
1: No, I had a little bit of, uh, a little bit of um, time, probably six months, but I had um, some family business to attend to. So, yeah.
0: So, Paul comes over and joins the uh, Salt Lake Organizing Committee and working in international relations and you come over and you go to work in the overlay department. Yeah. We're seeing the overlay for the Olympic and Paralympic family hotels. Yeah, All right. Very good. You mentioned that the weather was very different here in Salt Lake City as compared to Sydney. Uh, and that actually takes me to my first question when it comes to the memories of Salt Lake 2002. You know, for you, what was life like in Salt Lake City? I mean, that's it is quite a change, not just from a climate, but, um, you know, Salt Lake City is a very different place than than Sydney and very different than than England as well.
1: Yeah look, I um, I one of the things I really loved doing um, was gathering people together. I'm a great um, socializer, but more than that, I like to see people socializing. So I, I used to stage social events. I had a place, um, high up on Capitol Hill. Well, it sounds like I had the place highest up on Capitol Hill. That was a bit too grand that description. Sorry. I had a place on Capitol Hill and every three months or so I had something called a painting session. I don't, um, yeah, I don't know. Probably the first, I was there for about a year. So I think I had about four of these things and, um, I had, um, I issued about 100 invitations. I had to do that because, um, well, I had to cap it at about 100 because my place was only so big or so small. To give you a bit of a description, there was a top floor. So it was a three-level, like a little townhouse, I suppose you'd call it, or something like that. Um, The top floor was like the entrance off the street and a kitchen and a bar and lounge. The mid-level was the bedrooms, two little bedrooms, and then the bottom level was this kind of funky workshop, which had a rough laundry, but I converted it into a studio space. And it had um, it was pretty rough, roughly finished, or it was unfinished. But I I bought this canvas from an art supplies store and stretched the canvas between the timbers between the bare timbers and basically created this art studio where people could paint so when people received this um invitation to a painting session nearly everybody thought oh dave wants us to paint his apartment you know go and decorate but little were they to know but that they were going to this um this uh, opportunity to actually paint and people loved it
0: Wow. I, I love this. How did you come up with this idea, number one? And number two, what were some of the really interesting pieces that people ended up painting? Is there anything that stands out in your memory? Like, wow, that person's actually really good or, well, that was a rather goofy kind of a painting. But how did you come up with this idea initially?
1: That's a, that's a, yeah, that's an interesting question. question. um. I cannot paint to save my life, right? So it certainly wasn't out of any artistic sort of vein, but I think I'm pretty creative, and more than that, I'm pretty inventive. So it was, I think, a combination of a strong wish to gather people together to give them a chance to socialise and do something artistic together that they might not otherwise do. And the concept worked, um, so I'm told. The people at the sessions were a mixture of SLOC people, um, but also people from outside SLOC. And this was important to me. And I think that was part of the success of the sessions. So when I say people from outside, I'm talking about friends of mine that i gathered over my first six or nine months, um, and maybe friends of close friends of mine, and I'm talking about people from the Globe, the restaurant just over the road, um, from the headquarters of Slot, but also cafes, galleries, theatres, other arts companies, and you can sort of already see the arts sort of vein coming in there, and hairdressers as well. Now, Maureen Sweeney will recall, and I'm sure Paul Foster as well and several other people, there was a great guy called David Perks who worked? I can't remember the name of the the place, but um, I'm sure some some guys will. But uh, David Perks came along, and maybe half a dozen of his fellow hairstylists from this place, and um, they acted as the DJs on the night, and they did a fantastic job, and it just it just um, contributed to the the atmosphere of the evening, and they painted as well, so. Yeah, so it was just this rich mixture of artistic flavors from all over Salt Lake.
0: I think it's totally fascinating that you came up with this idea of painting sessions and you had people from inside of Sloc as well as outside of Sloc socialize and build uh, friendships. I think it's just an absolutely fascinating fascinating thing so thank you so much for sharing that Dave
1: yeah I think I think that was the secret was to not just have because people from the organizing committee see each other every day but I think it was and I had these comments come forward to me afterwards that they were really pleased to have the opportunity to meet guys from outside but also the guys from outside were really fascinated to meet the guys from inside because they didn't know what happened inside an organizing committee you know. So I think that was, that's why they were successful.
0: So I absolutely love it. I think it's, I think it's wonderful. So that actually takes me to my next question Uh, as, as a gatherer and as a person who loves to see people interact, I'm sure you uh, were able to witness all kinds of interesting interactions uh, during your time in Salt Lake City. (laughs) So uh, one of the things that I had on my list of questions is a, a funny story, you know, something that was really hilarious. Uh, when you were there working at SLOC. So does a funny story come to mind uh, as you look back in your days in Salt Lake?
1: Um, Well, there were many, many different – there were so many fantastic people that I worked with. Um, I don't really – and so many different things happened every day. You know, it's difficult to pick odd things out there were probably 20 things every day, you know, and they wouldn't mean much to people listening, but um, something uh, probably that I could just describe, it's not necessarily funny, but it might resonate with anybody who's done the same thing. And it's partially terrifying and partially, partially, partially funny. And Jackie, Jackie, might sort of, find this a bit sort of, uh, funny, uh, Jackie Edmiston I'm talking about, then knife, um, is the, um, four person bobsled. I don't know if Christian, have you been down the bobsled run?
0: I have not been down the bobsled run. I've heard about going, people going down the bobsled run, but I personally did not get that opportunity.
1: Yeah. Well, for better or for worse, I did. I mean, <laughs> um so jackie and i ended up i don't quite know how but we were in the same group and um we basically were sort of herded into this room this preparation room and um jackie and i were really looking i think they maybe maybe um they had a a sort of lucky dip thing i can't remember you had to pay but anyway it was i think as a member of Slock staff, you had the opportunity to put your name your ha- name in the hat, and and Jackie and I were lucky enough to to have the opportunity. And um, so on the day or on the morning, we we uh, we we sort of were herded into the pen, and um, I remember Jackie and I talking about the main thing we were looking forward to was the sprint start, you know, and particularly you know pushing on the sled and and. Yelling at the top of our voice, whatever the hell came in our, you know, minds. And uh, but then during the briefing, the guy who turns out was an Olympic coach. So at that at that moment we realised this was pretty serious. He was, um, and he was going to be our driver too. So he said then he said, "We're only going to go at 80 miles an hour today. We're not going to do 85. I'm going to go easy on you." <laughs> Um, Jackie and I it dawned upon us that we there was a couple of faults to our plan. So we wanted to be at the back of the um, sled. So I had called her brake girl, and I was brake boy because you know of the brake, and um, but there were a couple of faults because only one of us could be at the back you know out of design and then the person giving the briefing said no you guys are in the middle you are both basically sacks of potatoes there's going to be someone who knows what they're doing in the back, and i'm going to be at the front okay so that was it i mean so our fun pretty much we thought was over but um, no but it wasn't it wasn't it was um it had only just begun, so we started we got into the sled, slightly nervous, we started very slowly and um really slowly, I mean one mile an hour, two miles an hour because without the sprint you you know nothing's going on, and then all of a sudden boom, you sort of you fall off this cliff literally the 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 Decline goes so sort of sharp, and um, with every corner, the speed picks up so so fast. I mean, you're on ice. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm such an amateur describing this, but the gravity is just taking its toll here. You just—I felt we were completely out of control. <laughs> I think you start issuing expletives. That's about all you can do. I I can't remember how long it took, but probably about a minute to get to the bottom. And um, all I remember is when when I got to the bottom, I stood straight up and said, can I do that again, please? (laughs) I I did sort of, I was wobbling on my feet, but that was, what a rush. That was, that was great. I would highly recommend it to anybody that gets the chance.
0: Now I have a renewed interest in doing it, so I'm yeah. going to maybe that's what I'm going to do in 2021 is go down the bobsled track.
1: A, a piece of advice, something Jackie nor I, we didn't do it. During the briefing, they say you have to shrug your shoulders up until uh, up until they um, touch the underside of your helmet. and they uh, and the reason for that is because when you're going around the corners, you take so many Gs that your neck, basically, if you don't do that, your neck becomes incredibly sore at the end. Takes The neck muscles are really put out. And, of course, I forgot to do that, and so did Jackie. So if you do it, remember remember the neck shrugging.
0: That's good advice. Yeah, I can just your head feeling like a bowling ball just rattling around (laughs) you're going around corners so um you mentioned at the beginning you come from a summer games environment to a winter games environment the weather is obviously a challenge but you know what were some of the challenges that you faced when you were working on or preparing or delivering the games in you know what were uh, some of the ways that you overcame them? What were some of the interesting things that you did, uh, maybe innovative things that you did there in Salt Lake City?
1: Yeah, just a uh, fairly swift answer on this one. Um, this really this relates to the nature of the venue, the hotel, or the hotels being full-time operational environments. Now. Um, They're 24-hour businesses, unlike some other venues that are taken over by the organising committee. We have to, or the organising committee has to respect and operate within the confines of that operating business. So, in effect, we're establishing the overlay, the Olympic overlay, um, almost within the web, or well not the web, we're putting our web, our overlay web within the network of the existing venue, permanent venue infrastructure, you know what I mean? And now, you would not understand this as a technology man, that requires meticulous planning. So, I don't know whether this had been, this I mean, this is 18 years ago, I don't know quite how this had been done before Salt Lake, but I took a very logical approach and basically formed a, um, what I called <laughs> the Development Overview Group with the acronym DOG. So whether I liked the acronym and therefore I formed Deve- Development Overview Group, or whether which one came first, I don't know. But it was all about collaboration. So it had representatives from Overlay, myself, um, the event architects, logistics, technology, plus also the hotels. So primarily the chief engineers from the hotels. So those parties, um, and this was from maybe um, six months out initially, but ramping up, you know, until, well, right up until the installation period and during the installation period, but to ensure that the preparations were fine detailed and then were facilitated as they needed to be.
0: All right. I have two questions for you. Uh, Number one, I I like the dog. So, (laughs) If you had a, if you had a morning meeting and you had coffee and snacks, did you call the meeting a dog's breakfast? <laughs> Number two, were there impacts, uh, uh from stemming from nine 11 on your planning? Because after that happened, security got all tight. And, um, so did you have to make any changes to the overlay planning as a result of the increased security, uh, following the, the nine 11 tragedy?
1: Yes. Um, Right, okay. To the first one, no, it wasn't a dog's breakfast, (laughs) but I like the question. Um, (laughs) um, Everyone was left to do their own breakfast. To the second one, I already made reference to the imposition of additional security when I talked about the events of 2001. (laughs) But you're right, yes, you're right. Um, we had as an extra okay, well, you can hardly say an extra functional area, but we had the army, uh, the American army, you know, suddenly became an extra party to the to the um to the arrangements.
0: Give us a sense of what a day in the life looked like for you, Dave, Uh, during the Games. Were you deployed at the Olympic Family Hotel, the Paralympic Family Hotel? Were you there full-time, or were you in the main operations center, or were you out at venues? What was your life like during the Games?
1: Well, I I lived, because I lived up on the hill, I was not, I didn't live on venue, but I was, five minutes away in a car. So I was full-time operating from the venue. Um, So not not at the MOC, main operating centre. There were two, there was, yeah, looking at um, the main, so looking at the Olympic Family Hotels, which was Little America, it was, as I mentioned, it was naturally a 24-hour operation in its its, um, normal state. But at games time, it was in full lockdown. Following, as you referred to the events of 9/11, in a in normal circumstances, even notwithstanding though that that terrible event, the um, Olympic family hotels would be a 24/7 operation during Games time, which incidentally is not just the two weeks, 16 days of the games, but because it's the IOC's headquarters is a longer period. The, um, my first task basically would be to arrive well before the opening up of operational desks, you know, accreditation desks or normal operational desks um, to do a routine check. So I would probably get there at 6 a.m., um you know this sort of thing to 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 do a, uh, a circuit of the venue just to confirm whether everything was fine. Um, I was also on call 24 hours a day. I think I got a call on two or three occasions none of them fortunately none of them serious but um so once or twice I found myself going down there from Capitol Hill but fortunately nothing nothing serious on, on, on either of those occasions. There was a um, daily team meeting led by the venerable Mr Foster, um, who was held mid-morning, and depending on any instructions issued by the venue manager, Paul, I would go about the balance of my day. Um, I'd do a second tour of the venue in the afternoon, mid-afternoon, um, but otherwise nothing, nothing different from any other venue from an uh, overlay point
0: of view. All right, fantastic. Well, I typically end this uh, kind of segment on the goosebump moment, but before we get there, I want to give you an opportunity to uh, share any other stories you have uh, before we get to our goosebump moment. So is there anything else on your list? I know that you made notes and you're well-prepared and everything. Anything else you want to cover before we get to our final uh, inspirational moment?
1: Uh, Look, just, just um, just very briefly, um, I'd like to reflect on the great times that I shared with probably, oh, must have been hundreds of people, 50 or 100 people, who played in the softball, the informal softball league. I can't recall who organised the league because I got there probably a year out from the games or 15 months, and um, but one of the less fortunate teams Took me under their wing. <laughs> uh, my batting tech technique is very unconventional. Um, I have boundless energy in the in the outfield, so much so that I often sprint in to play second shortstop. So, which confused the hell out of my team, uh, let alone the batter. Um, but but I I um I think to have those sort of not secondary, but to have those sort of informal social events associated with an organising committee is is you know tremendously valuable. So if you can, but I think unlike the the gigs that I organised, I think this sort of thing, you know, the 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 um, softball league, that should be an, issue, an initiative of the organising committee itself. It may be led by, uh, you know, a a ring of people within the organising committee, but I think it should be resourced by the organising committee, you know? So just a little hint for anyone who's listening from future OCOGs.
0: Well, that's great advice. I actually will wrap up this uh, little yeah. show with yeah. advice, and you've actually already given us some really good nuggets of advice. Uh, but uh, before we get to the advice, let's go back to that goosebump moment. So, uh, what is your most inspirational moment? Could have been something that happened during games time, or even before the games, but it's a memory of yours that, whenever you think about it, it just makes you feel all nice and warm inside.
1: I've got. Goosebumps, you can see me on screen, I know. i got goosebumps just thinking about Steve Bradbury coming from last to first to take gold in the 1,000 metres track speed skate final. Um, I was very fortunate to be at the arena to see that. And um, I think I was, I don't know how many other other, I can sort of call myself half Australian because I've been here half of my life, but I was standing on the last bend where everyone collided, apart from Steve, who was far enough away from the front <laughs> four to avoid the pileup, um, he sailed across the line to victory, pretty much standing up. And the term to do a Bradbury was quickly adopted um, in in the Australian into the Australian lexicon. I looked it up last night. It means to become the unlikely winner of a contest, or to accidentally achieve success. <laughs> so I just think that's gorgeous and uh and I was very fortunate to um to be there so that's my that's my great memory of the games
0: uh it's a fantastic memory and I remember talking oh I don't remember mm. who it was with maybe it was with Beth White I don't remember but mm. one of the people that we've had on the podcast said that's actually when the games really began you know because we had competitions and things like that, but it was the first real story of these games, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, I mean, taking away, uh, t- there's the whole 9-11 thing and the opening ceremony and all that kind of, that, that was a special thing. But when it came to the competition, that was something that just really ignited everybody's interest and passion because it was just it was so incredibly miraculous and serendipitous uh, for Bradbury to cross the finish line unscathed while all of his competitors are piled up. Uh, It was really, 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 really cool. So I'm glad that you mentioned that one. I think that's a great, great memory. All right. Well, we're probably at the end of your lunch hour, so we'll need to let you get back to it. But before we do, I've got one final question for you. And this is a new thing for this year, 2021. And the reason that I put it in here is I've actually had a fair number of listeners write in comments or in emails to me that what they they heard was actually really valuable information. It was helpful. It wasn't just about entertainment. But people were sharing their knowledge and their experience in a way that they they felt was actually helpful to themselves and their careers or in their lives. And so I kind of wanted to formalize it a little bit and give opportunity for our guests. All of you are very experienced people uh, to share some life or career advice. So my final question uh, today for you here, Dave, is. Uh, What three pieces of advice would you give the listeners? You know, it could be something that you learned in Salt Lake or even elsewhere, but something that served as a, I don't know, guiding principles in your life that you could uh, then recommend to others.
1: Very good. Thank you, Christian. I've been thinking long and hard about this. (laughs) Um, The first one applies to the Olympics and Paralympics. Um, So for me, a huge attraction of working on the Olympics and Paralympics is the chance to make marvellous friends from all parts of the globe and many specialist fields. By doing this, you grow your own character and knowledge. So my advice is if you get the chance to work on the Olympics and Paralympics or a similar opportunity to work on a major world event, then grab it. Second piece of advice. Every new scenario warrants fresh, unhurried analysis. I'll give you a bit of background on that one because it sounds a bit misty. In my experience, I've, I've sort of come across <clears throat> or witnessed people or individuals sometimes applying too swiftly an approach that they've witnessed or that they've seen in a previous situation to a new scenario and sometimes that's not always the best thing to do conversely the assessment of a person of a person with fresh eyes or with a fresh opinion can be just as valuable um, as a person with experienced eyes hence that bit of advice that an analysis um, of a new scenario to me by a combination of people with experience and with less experience is a good thing. Don't just go with the person who's done it before. Okay, lastly, strive for excellence, professionalism, and maintain a sense of calm under pressure. Bring your own style and sense of humor. Focus on the present and don't concern yourself overly about the future.
0: Well, I think all of those are are excellent pieces of advice. I'm very, very grateful that I grabbed an opportunity to work (laughs) in the Olympic space. There are times that I have tried to escape the orbit of major events and have not been successful in doing so. But at the end of the day, I realized it's because I don't really want to escape this orbit. I like being in this orbit. And so... The gravitational pull of major events is mesmerizing. Dave, I really appreciate you sharing that advice and sharing all of your stories uh, and memories of Salt Lake 2002. I wish you all the best for 2021. And uh, thank you so much for participating on our podcast today. Listeners, please like and subscribe to our podcast and we'll catch you again soon. Dave, thank you so much.
1: Christian, it's been an absolute pleasure.